today. The plan is to discuss this work, Julius Evola's Fascism Viewed from the Right. And unlike the last live stream where I had a few passages in Heidegger's contributions to philosophy of the event that I bookmarked and commented on spontaneously, here I have actually prepared some notes because I wanted to make sure that we go through the whole thing pretty uh, in, in enough detail for you to have a good sense of what Evola is arguing and why. So let's do that. And before we even get into the contents of the book, I think it's important to stop to consider the title. How is fascism usually understood and used as a word today? As a rule, liberals call anything to the right of liberalism fascist, and leftists call anything to the right of themselves fascist. So fascism has come to mean something like the enemies to the right of us. In everyday political topography, fascism is essentially synonymous with the far right end of the political spectrum, as you know, and I think it should therefore come as a surprise that there could be a viewpoint to the right of fascism on the basis of which to assess fascism critically. The title implies that fascism and the right are distinct. Fascism may be a phenomenon of the right, but it doesn't exhaust the right. So we'll have to follow along with Evola's arguments to see how the true right as he conceives it is distinct from fascist doctrine. So again, even when I first heard this title, I was surprised because the assumption always is that fascism just occupies the right. There can be no position to the right of it. So this study, I think, will also have the benefit of giving us a clearer presentation of fascism and of the right than we would normally get from a liberal or a leftist perspective. And that doesn't mean that it's the last word or that it's immune from liberal and leftist criticism. It may or may not be, but it will help us to become familiar with the thing itself and not with some cheap distorted substitute. Those of you who know of my work on Dugan and other thinkers know that I try to find a way to let the ideas speak for themselves so we can at least understand what we're talking about before we assess it, weigh it, judge it, criticize it. Whereas many scholars, as you know, because of the liberal and leftist predominance in, the, in academia and elsewhere, they just don't take these authors seriously at all. They misinterpret them before they even uh, open the first page of the first book they decide to look at. So that's not going to be the approach here. And for the most part, I'm going to be reading out passages so that the book can speak for itself. Obviously, I'm leaving some parts out because we can't go through the whole thing, but it'll be enough to give you an impression of the main points. So, Avola begins his essay by observing that at the time he's writing, in the early 70s, there's no unified Italian right. And even here, you'll see that some of what he says is applicable and interesting to us Today, So he says, a significant sign of confused ideas and today's narrow horizons is established by the fact that in Italy today, liberals and many other proponents of democracy can be considered men of the right, a situation that would have appalled representatives of a real traditional right, because when such a right existed, liberalism and democracy were notoriously and justly considered currents of revolutionary subversion more or less as radicalism, Marxism, and communism appear today in the eyes of the so-called parties of order, he writes. So you see the idea that anyone can be on the right who's a liberal or who supports democracy is here rejected at the outset. Liberal conservatism, the defense of liberal democracy, neoliberalism, none of that counts as the right, even though he's saying in his time there was that confusion also. 
And also rejected at the outset is the identification of the political right with the economic right, an identification he calls absurd. It is the Marxists who acknowledge no difference between the capitalists, the right, the conservative, and the bourgeoisie. For them, it's all one synonymous chain. But as Evola writes, between the true right and the economic right, there is not only no common identity, but on the contrary, there is a clear antithesis. And we'll see later that he opposes the economic takeover of the state, so economism sublimated to a first principle, and the prioritization of economic interests above all other interests. So today we may sometimes hear the economic right called the right, but he says, no, the economic right and the political right are two very separate things. They have almost no middle ground between them. The next point is about the term the right. It is used polemically, he notes, within a party system to refer to the antithesis of various lefts. But in principle, the right represents or ought to represent a higher demand. It ought to be the recipient and affirmer of values linked directly to the idea of the true state. Values that are in a certain sense central and superior to every practical opposition, according to the superiority inherent in the very concept of authority or sovereignty taken in its fullest sense. In other words, the true concept of the right should not see it as a player in a pre-constituted field of party politics, where it's one among a number of alternatives, just a little bit separately positioned on this horizontal shared political plane. Rather, it's directly linked to the idea of the state as something above party politics. Ideally, the concept of a true right, or what we mean by the right, ought to be defined, he writes, in terms of forces and traditions that acted formatively on a group of nations and sometimes also on supranational unifications before the French Revolution, before the advent of the Third Estate and the world of the masses, and before bourgeois and industrial culture, with all its consequences and its games, which consist of actions and reactions that have led to the contemporary chaos and to all that threatens to destroy the little that still remains of European culture and European prestige. Incidentally, that would mean that to understand the true right on its own terms means to have before us the pre-modern alternative, the world that preceded the rise of the French Revolution and all these other things, the world of thinking about politics that's pre-modern, and we have to have it before us as free from distortion as possible. We don't want to interpret the ancient regime or the pre-modern or ancient world through the lens of modern propaganda. We'd like to try to access it on its own terms more purely and pristinely. The traditionalists may be one source for insights into the pre-modern or non-modern. In political theory and political philosophy, the writings of Leo Strauss are, in my opinion, indispensable for that task. So moving on, Evola recognizes that Democrats and communists, then as now, tended to call national forces neo-fascist. But he says that in his case, this creates a situation full of errors. There are those, he writes, who maintain ideological loyalty to fascist Italy and who have made Mussolini and fascism into objects of a myth. Instead of focusing on the political ideas that should be taken seriously, in themselves and for themselves. The defenders of fascism ignore its negative sides 
remember, he's writing about his contemporaries. The defenders of fascism ignore its negative sides, and the critics of fascism only tendentiously emphasize the most problematic sides so as to discredit all of it or make people hate it. Some try to delegitimize fascism by linking it to Italy's defeat in the Second World War, but Evola believes, like Plato long before him, that the truth of a doctrine or principle is not ascertained by its victory or defeat in war. As Evola puts it, fascism wouldn't have been proved right if Italy had won the war either. So not just victory in war, but the truth of the ideas themselves should be our measure of their uh, merit. Now, in the next passage I'm going to read, which I posted earlier today to Twitter, you'll hear him giving voice to an idea that may be familiar to you from Alexander Dugan's concept of a fourth political theory, if any of you know that from my other work. He writes as follows, we must energetically oppose anyone who claims that the choice must be between fascism or anti-fascism in any attempt to exhaust every political possibility and discussion. One consequence of this simple polarity, for example, is that no one can be anti-democratic without automatically being fascist or communist. This closed circle is absurd. In other words, he opposes the bipartite division of political ideologies into fascist and anti-fascist and the tripartite division into communist, democratic, by which we mean liberal democratic, and fascist. Neither model exhausts the relevant political alternatives. And in particular, you can be anti-democratic without being either a communist or a fascist. So again, that's in part why it's interesting that he's carved out the space for us to the right of fascism for discussion. Just looking over here briefly into the comments. Some, some familiar names there. Nice to see you. Thanks for joining. Okay, so what was the merit of fascism for Evola? It was above all to have revived in Italy the idea of the state and to have created the basis for an active government by affirming the pure principle of authority and political sovereignty. Fascism was opposed to the hollow conception of the state, which is supposed to limit itself to protecting the negative liberties of citizens as simple empirical individuals, guaranteeing a certain well-being and relatively peaceful communal life together. Presumably you know, but if you don't, negative liberty from Isaiah's Berlin, Isaiah Berlin's essay on the two liberties, negative liberty ultimately means you're free when nobody's interfering with your activity, when you're left alone to do as you please. And later he'll juxtapose it to positive liberty. But here he says that the principle of the state is opposed to the negative liberties of the citizens, the, that hollow conception of the state. This hollow conception, uh, sorry, the fascist conception of the state was also opposed to the idea of a pure bureaucracy of public administration. It supported the superiority of the state, the preeminence of the state in respect to people and nation. He writes, the formula that the people is the body of the state and the state is the spirit of the people, if adequately interpreted, brings us back to the classical idea of a dynamic and creative relationship between form and matter. The state is the form conceived as an organizing and animating force, according to the interpretation given to matter and form in traditional philosophy, starting with Aristotle. The state is not the product of a social contract of individuals that pre-exist it in a state of nature, as with the political theory of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, the thinkers that Leo Strauss called the first and second wave of modernity. 
So the state in fascist theory is distinct from the state in liberal theory. It's not the weak hollow conception that exists just to protect private property and allow people to pursue their own life, liberty, and happiness. It has to be something more. Evola thinks that the general doctrine of the state in fascism is, from the view of the right, absolutely positive. We find ourselves right in the orbit of healthy, traditional political thought, he says. And it was necessary that the pre the principle of the preeminence of the state before everything that is simply people and nation should be articulated further through the ideal opposition between state and society. Under the term society are united all those values, interests, and dispositions that enter into the physical and vegetative side of the community and the individuals that compose it. In reality, there's a fundamental antithesis, he writes, of doctrine between political systems that focus on the idea of the state and those that focus on the idea of society, the social type of state. The second type of system includes the varieties of theories based upon the concept of natural rights, contract theory with a utilitarian base, and democracy. So two different theories of state, fascism opposed to the one that's most familiar to us. Evola says that fascism had developed the state-society distinction. So in the principle of the preeminence of the state, it had followed that through to a clear distinction between state and society. But it didn't develop that distinction in theory or in practice as completely as it could have done with certain compromises in practice, as we'll see a bit later on. So we can ask here about the distinction between the political and social levels. Evola argues that we should define the political level in part in terms of transcendence, where you're dealing with, as he writes, a certain ideal high tension that brings us not only beyond hedonistic values of simple material well-being, comfortable self-preservation, but also eudaimonistic ones that include spiritual well-being. So somehow the political is above even those two, even that form of well-being. Evola says that fascism recognized the need for transcendence, but its initiatives and customs in that regard were superficial and contrived. In other words, the true right agrees with fascism that there should be a transcendent dimension to politics that takes us above our individual material and even spiritual interests, but he doesn't believe that fascism delivered. Just looking at the comments. Evola criticizes any obsession with the rationalizing of existence, especially the tendency to render service to an ideal that is not political, but social, in which belongs to physical comfort and to marginalize and discredit everything that's comprised of existential tension, heroism, and the galvanizing force of myth. He suggests that when people become bored of prosperity and comfort, we will see a rise of forms of blind, anarchic, and destructive revolts embraced by a youth that precisely in the most prosperous nations notice the absurdity and senselessness of an existence that is socialized, rationalized, materialistic, and dominated by so-called consumer culture. Against that tendency, fascism was correct, he writes, to want to maintain a climate of high tension, especially through a certain liturgy or mystique of power and sovereignty. But Evola says that we have to recognize in the case of fascism, the line beyond which there's only self-parody or insincerity 
in a system limited by the incongruity between principles and intents on one hand and a given human substance on the other. In other words, although the basic idea of the mystique of power and sovereignty that transcends materialistic culture is correct, the practice, to repeat, felt far short of the ideal. So he'll be quite critical of the Italians under fascism a little bit later on, but this is an argument that he's making and returning to. Um, the need for a certain liturgy or mystique of power and sovereignty as truly belonging to the principles of the right. So we've seen that he asserts the superiority of the state. And now he raises the question, does the superiority of the state amount to a sacralization of the state? Are you making the state a sacred entity? Is that sort of a deification or divinization of the state? Well, if we criticize the fascist doctrine of the state on those grounds, if we say that fascism makes of the state a sacred entity, we're presupposing a dualism between the world of the state and the spiritual world, the world of the sacred. This dualism, he writes, entails desecrating and reducing to the material all that is politics, power, and authority. And on the other hand, denying reality to all that is spiritual and sacred. Yet in traditional states, one or another form of the consecration of power and authority constituted the fulcrum and legitimation of the entire system. If authority and sovereignty do not possess some type of spiritual chrism in principle, they do not even deserve to be called by the names. And the entire system of the true state turns out to lack any solid gravitational center for everything that cannot be reduced to a mere administrative and social system instead of contributing to the climate of high tension. So this idea that the true state must have a sacral character owing to the chrism of authority is key for Evola in this book. He criticizes Mussolini for failing to directly confront the serious problem of the ultimate chrism or spiritual sanction of the state. Mussolini had said that the state has no theology, but it has a morality, to which Evola responds that every morality if it is to have a profound justification and an intrinsically normative character, if it is not to be a mere convenience of communal living, must have a transcendent basis through which it brings us to a plane no different from the religious one, where theology too receives its form. That's what would be required by a true doctrine of the state from the right, and Mussolini didn't, didn't have that to offer. And here I'd like to point out that Evola says that, so. I think this is an important point to make. Even elements like struggle and heroism, loyalty and sacrifice, contempt for death and so on, things that are positive for the right, broadly speaking, even they can take on an irrational, naturalistic, tragic, and dark character when the higher and in a certain way transfiguring reference point is lacking, of which it is said that it necessarily belongs to a level that transcends the domain of simple ethics. So in other words, these virtues of the right are perverted and distorted when they lack a transcendent, sacred context. Now, the next point he makes, by the way, hope everything sounds good and isn't going too fast. And you're getting, beginning to get a sense for what Evola thinks in this book about fascism and about the right, if you're unfamiliar with it. And... 
there are many themes here where we can mention other authors who pick up on it in one way or another in political philosophy and in political theory. So, for example, I just finished reading Koyev's brief presentation of the notion of authority, where he also discusses various forms of authority, the authority of the judge, of the leader, of the master, and of the father, relating them to various figures in philosophy. And he also discusses in which case and exactly how authority needs to have this chrism of um, transcendence. So some people who think Evola was a fascist, some liberals and leftists and moderates who might think Evola was a fascist, there's nothing we could possibly learn from him. We must avoid him like the plague. In fact, as I've tried to suggest so far, there are some topics in his work that even canonical thinkers in political theory like Strauss and Koyev, let's say, would be discussing. And we've already had occasion to refer to Aristotle on, uh, on his authority here. So we shouldn't be unwilling to read the authors that follow side of our own political persuasion, if you happen to be a liberal or a leftist. And if you're already a fascist or on the right, then you shouldn't take the ideas for granted. You should make sure that we become well acquainted with them and think about them. So hopefully this is helping. The next point concerns the relation between state and people. Evola criticizes fascism for its confusion on this point. When it comes to combining the centrality of the state with an emphasis on people and fatherland. And that's because the sentiments of fatherland and nation have a pre-political and naturalistic character similar to that of the sentiment of family, especially compared to what unites men on the political level on the basis of an idea and a symbol of sovereignty. So the political unification of the people under a symbol and an idea is the correct sense of unification. The pre-political naturalistic unification on the basis of nationality and fatherhood is on a lower level. And in fact, he writes that patriotism has in it, this is now my paraphrase, not a direct quote, although it's probably 99% accurate. Patriotism has in it something of a mob aspect that Evola opposes. In other words, fascism had a populist element, but Evola argues that the true principles of the right are not populist. He therefore criticizes fascism for its hybridism and for collapsing two very distinct ideological worlds. From the perspective of a true right, Fascism can also be criticized for its totalitarianism, according to this book. Which, by the way, could be surprising because, again, you might think that to call fascism totalitarian is a liberal argument, which sees communism and fascism as variants of one broader concept called totalitarianism. But here he says that from the perspective of a true right, fascism can be criticized for its totalitarianism. The principle of a central authority that cannot be controverted becomes degenerate when it's affirmed through a system that controls everything, regiments everything, and intervenes in everything. The traditional state is organic, but not totalitarian. It's differentiated and articulated and admits zones of partial autonomy. It coordinates forces and causes them to participate in a superior unity while recognizing their liberty. This is, I'm quoting, 
Exactly because it is strong, it does not need to resort to mechanical centralizing, which is required only when it's necessary to rein in a shapeless and atomistic mass of individuals' wills, from which, however, disorder can never be truly eliminated, but only temporarily contained. It doesn't meddle with everything. It doesn't substitute itself for everything. It doesn't aim at a barracks-style regimentation of society in the negative sense, or at a leveling conformism instead of free acknowledgement and loyalty. The traditional image is rather that of a natural gravitation of parts and partial unities around a center that commands without compelling and acts out of prestige with an authority that can, of course, resort to force, but abstains from it as much as possible. Finally, the evidence of the effective force of a state, he writes, is found in the measure of the margin it can concede to a partial rational decentralization. So in other words, the true state is opposed to total systematic state interference. By the way, I see a comment. I'll try to address what I can when I can. But the thought that the state should be a part of society, not separated from it, that is invert, inverse, I would say, because the state is not a part of society. It's not really a part of anything. It's the, it's, it has supremacy. It has preeminence. And certainly it doesn't arise from society or belong to society. It's distinct from society and superior to society in Evelyn's doctrine. In his presentation of the doctrine of the true right. Now, we just said that Evola thinks there should be liberty and autonomy and no leveling conformism as much as, as is compatible with, as he put it here again, uh, a center that commands without compelling and acts out of prestige with, an, with a recognized authority. So he was also critical of those cases when fascism acted as a school teacher, exercising pressure, not on the political and objective level, but on the level of one's personal moral life. For instance, he opposed the pro-natalist campaign, both because it rested on what he thought was an erroneous opinion concerning quantity. It's not always the case that the greater quantity is more powerful, but often in political history, small numbered groups are the main and most powerful actors. So he says, this idea that we'll be greater in power, the greater we are in number, he opposed that, but that wasn't the only reason. It's also because in the case of Italy specifically, he thought the population was already excessive and there was therefore no need for a demographic campaign, which could only make things worse. And he also opposed the pseudo-pedagogical side of fascism in regard to the regulation, i.e. the repression and inhibition of sex. He thought that the liberty of the person should be respected and should aim again at a high tension rather than at a moralization. What then is the meaning of liberty in the fascist state? Here, Evola writes that the principal cause of the existential crisis of contemporary man. Now, I'll just say that again because it's important. The principal cause of the existential crisis of contemporary man is, according to Evola, the attainment of negative liberty, with which, in the end, one does not know what to do, given the lack of sense and the absurdity of modern society. I think this is published in the early 70s. Even then, the lack of sense and the absurdity of modern society. In truth, personality and liberty can be conceived only on the basis of the individual's freeing himself, to a certain degree, from the naturalistic, biological, and primitively individualist bonds that characterize the pre-state and pre-political forms 
in a purely social, utilitarian, and contractual sense. So freedom here is a sort of self-transcendence of the kind Isaiah Berlin considered under the name positive liberty. That is, the higher self should transcend the lower self, and the state should encourage this impulse in a political and objective direction. There's also, Evola writes, a downward self-transcendence, where the individual transcends himself in the direction of collectives and demagogic movements. For Evola, if we're going to use the term totalitarian at all to refer to left and right, then we should say that leftist totalitarianism represents downward or catagogic self-transcendence, whereas the totalitarianism of the right is upward or anagogic self-transcendence. We transcend ourselves in the direction of something more than ourselves, something higher than ourselves. The only thing they have in common is their opposition to the limited and hollow regime of the bourgeois individual. Otherwise, they're fundamentally opposed. Uh, no, he doesn't elaborate here on which negative rights he means specifically, just uh, to be left alone, not to want to have any external authority, to pursue your comfortable self-preservation, your material interests, your well-being, and even your own individual, private, spiritual well-being. As he said earlier, when he distinguished between both the hedonistic and the eudaimonistic forms of well-being as lower than the fascist ideal when it comes to these things. Just looking at the comments. Hopefully I'm not missing too much. If I am, I'll take another look at it here shortly. So left and right, totally opposed. They transcend individual bourgeois consumer-based culture, but in opposite directions. And I wasn't going to say it, but I just, I know some of you do follow me for my work on Dugan. So the idea that there's an upward and a downward self-transcendence may be interesting for those of you who follow the Noomachia project, because upward self-transcendence could be the Apollonian and downward self-transcendence could be the Sibelian. But that's an aside for those of you who follow Dugan's project. Next just going to the next set of the arguments here. Evola is critical of the fascists for their idea of a one-party state, which he calls an absurdity. Because it belongs exclusively to the world of parliamentary democracy, it is only irrationally, irrationally that the idea of a party can be preserved in a regime opposed to everything that is democratic. Saying party, on the other hand, means saying part. And the concept of party implies that of a multiplicity through which the sole party would be the part that wants to become the whole. In other words, the faction that eliminates all the others without for all that changing its nature and elevating itself to a higher level, precisely because it continues to consider itself as a party. So the idea of a one-party system is wrong. There should be no parties in a regime that is non-democratic. And also the part shouldn't try to consider itself the whole without changing its self-understanding to be a, a, the proper embodiment of some bigger idea. So he says this idea is, is absurd. Absurd. He juxtaposes to the concept of the party, the concept of the order, as the backbone of the state, participating to a certain degree in the authority and dignity that gathers indivisible at the top of the state. So the fascists should not 
upon coming to power, have, have formed or fashioned themselves as a one-party state, but rather as a fascist order. A comment here, one-party state de facto eliminates parliamentary politics. Yeah, but again here, there has to be a consistency for Ebola of the terminology, of the notions, of the concepts. So it's not just that because there's one party, it's non-democratic, since democratic implies more than one party. It's that they've incorrectly they've incorrectly inserted a concept into the conceptual world of the fascist state or the state of the true right that doesn't belong and therefore can produce absurdities and inadequacies. And this type of conceptual analysis, a conceptual analysis of political theory is key, not just for people like Evola, but for example, Carl Schmitt's book on the symbol of the Leviathan and Hobbes. He also says that Hobbes had made a mistake in his symbolization of the Leviathan that allowed the crack in to the sovereign state, allowing for private opinion in matters of religion and so on. So the one thing is what does it look like on the ground in terms of the political reality? And the other is, is the conceptual set coherent? I also need to interview Carvalho. Maybe at some point I'll get occasion to talk to him. You know that I did a video on his debate with Dugan. And I probably emphasize the Dugan's arguments more than Olavo's because they're the ones that I work on. But I try to be fair to, to both of them. And I do have a lot of people following me in Brazil lately, I think, who share that video because there's not much discussion of that debate in English. Do I think Evola is too esoteric to be compatible with American Christian fascists? I don't really know the political theory of American Christian fascism well enough to know whether the incompatibility or compatibility has to do with esotericism or has to do with the conceptual structure of their thought. Evola is also critical of the cult of leadership around Mussolini. And again, he writes here of the mass party elements in fascism. He says a few times in the book that fascism made too much of a concession in the direction of the people, the nation, the masses, which is incompatible with the doctrine of the true right. And this cult of leadership and the mass party elements are in contrast to the state-centric upward anagogic principle. These two things are related because a mass can be created around the magnetic figure of a personality. But when the current that generates the magnetic force field fails, instantaneously all the magnetized particles drop off the magnet and are scattered in an ephemeral quantity, demonstrating how contingent the preceding state of formless aggregation was. The state is more than the cult of the leader. Here, Evola contrasts two attitudes towards the leader. The traditional pathos of distance and the contemporary pathos of nearness. Classically, the leader was somewhat of an almost different nature, somehow like almost superhuman, un untouchable, someone greater than the average person. But now people want a leader who's essentially one of us, a good friend, the kind of person you'd like to have a beer with, who expresses the will of the people. This, he says, is anti-traditional and incompatible with the ideals and ethos of the true right. And yet he faults Mussolini for positioning himself as one of the people and for that cult of leadership in fascism. The leader should not be one of the people, but should be an elite, not like the financial elite, but in a spiritual sense or in the sense of uh, a character elite, an elite soul. On the topic 
here of the military type as a human ideal. So he says, let's turn to the question of the accusation or the observation that fascism elevated the military type and had a sort of militarization of existence. Here he writes that there's little to object to. Once we emphasize in this regard that we're dealing essentially with a style of behavior, an ethic that can also have an autonomous value independently of obligatory military ends. The military training and its positive living aspects, not just what the soldier learns in the barracks, must correct everything that can proceed from states of irrational and emotional aggregation by a mob and the people. So here the emphasis is on discipline and love of discipline, as opposed to the dangers of the bourgeois spirit and stagnation of vapid existence. He calls the military style the most important factor of stability for a political and social organism, the antithesis to a culture of affluence or a consumer culture with its spiritually suffocating activity. Honor, service as honor, command and obedience, responsibility, distaste for gossip, and a manly solidarity based on true liberty. These aspects of militarization in fascism he approves of wholeheartedly. Okay, let me just go to the chat here for a minute. In Noamachia, Dugan says Dionysus is the transitional state between Apollonian and Sibelian, that to reach the Apollonian triumph, chaotic pre-order. I suggest we put the Noamachia discussion off for another occasion. I'm happy to think about these questions and to discuss them with you, but I think we should not get into the nitty gritty here and now. As for why Russian philosophy should start with Heraclitus, not Plato, again, a complicated question because Heraclitus, Plato, and Heidegger all play a central role and we'd have to triangulate and figure out exactly the proportions and the reasons for each of them. But again, I suggest we set that off for another occasion. The next point Evola criticizes in fascism viewed from the right as absurd is representation on the basis of universal suffrage and the principle of one man, one vote. This basis is absurd, he writes, and indicates more than anything else that the individualism that combined with the pure criterion of quantity and number defines modern uh, democracy. So individualism and quantity as defining modern democracy is absurd. And it's represented in universal suffrage, one man, one vote. We say individualism in the bad sense because here we're dealing with the individual as an abstract, atomistic, statistical unity, not as a person. Because the quality of a person, that is a being that has a specific dignity, a unique quality and differentiated traits, is obviously negated and offended in a system in which one vote is the equal of any other, in which the vote of a great thinker, a prince of the church, an eminent jurist or sociologist, the commander of an army and so on, has the same weight, measured by counting votes, as the vote of an illiterate butcher's boy, a halfwit, or the ordinary man in the street who allows himself to be influenced in public meetings or who votes for whoever pays him. The fact, he writes, that we can talk about progress in reference to a society where we have reached the level of considering all this as normal is one of the many absurdities that perhaps in better times will be the cause of amazement or amusement. Not the abstract statistical unity of the individual, 
but the qualitative person should be what matters in political judgment and in our political system. You cannot ensure the preeminence of a public interest, he argues, especially a transcendent political one, which is essential to the true conception of the state on the right, on the basis of the democratic principle of representation, which leads the individual to restricting himself only to advancing the protection of the interests of an inferior type in his personal electoral program or in his party's program. In other words, if you think of the individual in the way that democratic politics does, all you're going to have is parties that try to satisfy and flatter narrow interests, low interests, definitely not transcendent political interests. Um, and if they are transcendent, they'll be catagogically transcendent or downwardly transcendent. Parties do not recognize interests and considerations that transcend their own narrow political ideology and their commitment to the defense of the basic interests of some group of voters. Correct representation, he writes, and what's correct representation, represents not only individuals and their material interests, sorry, represents not individuals and their material interests, but rather groups like the nobility, the scholars, the army, and so on. So what is to be represented in the representational politics of the true right is not the interest of individuals, but the interests of these bodies or corporations. And by corporations, he means here a unity of various elements of productive activity in hierarchical solidarity. So corporation doesn't mean you, you make phones in China and sell them all over the world. Corporation mean, means here a body of productive activity united in hierarchical solidarity. Such corporate unity is distinct from union solidarity, the union movement, which always represents a unity of only one class against another class. So here Ebola criticizes fascism for its halfway measures on the anti-union front, though he judges it positively for its corporatism in principle. He felt the fascists should have been more anti-union since the unions are not hierarchical solidarity, but class solidarity. So an aristocratic authoritarian state is the true right of Volian state in the comments? Well, that's part of it, but we would have to understand what he means by aristocratic. And again, it would have to be dedicated to a transcendent political goal. And it would have to have other features. And by the time I get to the end of the presentation of the book, I'm going to go through the main features of the true state in basically an outline form more compactly than we're going through it here. So then you'll see it the summary of what's required. Explain the connection between Protestantism, especially Lutheran, as a precondition for fascism from the perspective of the elevated individuality. Well, my goal is just to give you the main arguments of Evola in this book for now, for today. And he doesn't, he doesn't discuss Protestantism as a precondition for individualism. He has a different conception of the person. And the references that he does make and has made, and a few more we'll get to shortly, are to the conception of the person in classical antiquity. So he's already mentioned Aristotle, and we'll see shortly that he also mentions um, the classical Hellenistic world again in this context. So our closest reference point would be the, the classics or the ancients. In the economic sphere, Evola supported national economic independence, autarky, 
and austerity. He contrasted that to apparently generalized prosperity and thoughtless living from day to day beyond one's means, along with a frightening state debt balance leading to extreme economic and social instability, growing inflation, and an invasion of foreign capital. And he writes that just as a real man doesn't go overboard in taking care of his body, becoming its slave, the real state or true state shouldn't go overboard in taking care of its economy. So there should be not thoughtless day-to-day living that puts your country into debt, makes your yourself um, slovenly and all the rest of it. So as I said, independence, autarky, austerity, living within your means, moderation, and... Um, That's what he says. Okay, hold on a second. Bodybuilders aren't real men. I mean, yeah, to a certain extent, he says that if you go too far in the direction of an obsession with your body, your bodily needs and your figure and everything like that, it has its place. He would prefer the, the soldier to some other types that proliferate in contemporary liberalism. But the true man has to be a man of noble soul and i think he shares that also with the greeks it will appear oh wait sorry right okay so evola thought that the post-war world had gone to the extreme of elevating economic interests above all others and in that way it made man into homo economicus. So it's not that man is homo economicus. It's that when the economic interest becomes dominant, as he writes, it is natural that man becomes the subject of the laws of the economy, which acquire an almost autonomous character until other interests are reaffirmed and a superior power intervenes. So it's not as though we are fated to a political, to to social economic, economism and to the human being as consumer that prevailed because we elevated our economic interests above all others and here too i would say that leo strauss is helpful if you read his account of the transformation in the history of political philosophy of what is to be our nature and what we are to strive for you'll get a very compelling account i think about how the classical ideal was transformed into elevating the economic interests above all others. But again, that's an aside for those of you who are looking for suggestions about other things to read. If we begin, he says, with the principle of the preeminence of politics over the economy and the return to the idea of a true state, then the monstrous development of capitalism in the direction of unfettered productivity can be limited. With the ultimate end of restoring the economy and everything that is economic, to the subordinate position in which it becomes only a means to an end and a circumscribed dominion within a much vaster hierarchy of values and interests. So Evola is opposed, as is the left, to the monstrous development of capitalism in the direction of unfettered productivity, but not the withering away of the state, but rather the correct assertion of the state as superior to the economy And putting the economy in its right place and having things fall into their proper order is the correct remedy. 
On this point, Evola says that fascism was too much a hurried movement where it, it should have stopped to ask the question of the ideal culture to strive for, definitely or in principle. So the true right always has before itself the ideal that you're striving for in principle. And he said fascism lost, lost sight of that. Let me just pause here. There's a discussion going on there that I'll encourage you to continue. So the next issue that he turns to is race. And on the issue of race in fascism, he says Mussolini often confused race and nation. No historical nation is a race, he writes. The basic idea here seems to be that only the idea of race sorry, is that the idea of race should only be applied to the elites as a special breed. So extending the concept of race to the people as a mass is, a, is in my interpretation, another example of downward self-transcendence. Okay, he says, the nation is not a race, and race is sort of a term that should be kept for the elite, as we'll see in a second. I mean, that's not exactly accurate, but we'll see in a second. So he says the fascists turned to racism out of three factors. Their late developed hostility toward the Jew. Evola says he writes about in a separate work. So we don't have the full details here, but he does say that he regards this factor as the most incidental of the three. And he says, it's not like anti-Semitism was a feature only of the fascist regime. There are other reasons. They're not and necessarily inherent to fascist doctrine. The fascists were much better in this regard than the National Socialists. And at any rate, as I say, he himself says, see my other work on this topic. The second of the three factors was the concept of a type of national racial consciousness linked to the conquest of Ethiopia and the creation of the African Empire. In other words, a national identity that formed as a function of colonial exploits. So we have our imperial colonialism, and in order to distinguish between what's here and what's there, there's a um, recourse to a concept of race and racism. Neither this second point does he elaborate in detail here or think is particularly important. Rather, the third and most important factor, he says, was the problem of forming a new type of Italian. The concept of racism was employed to help cause a select type to arise. And Evola approves of this aim in principle. The state should actively form the nation as its matter into a higher type. So the idea of employing the concept of race in the formation through the state of a higher type is okay. Here Evola talks about not only the physical race, but of character, which he calls in this book, the race of soul, that's his phrase. And he refers, quote, to an ideal that is classical, even Hellenic. He opposes the lower racism of the body, as well as vulgar anti-Semitism, but supports, and those are his words, but supports racism in this classical or Hellenic sense as the formation of a noble soul. He laments the fact, however, that there were not enough such people of race in Italy to support 
what we might call the inner truth and greatness of fascism. What must we think, he writes, of the, of the foundations on which fascism rested in part when we see the ease with which the hysterical popular masses disappeared like snow in the sun, when the wind changed direction, and when we consider the number of ex-fascists today who accordingly don't hesitate to declare that in the preceding period they were in bad faith, were acting out of mere conformism or opportunity, or had been brainwashed. In other words, there were so few men of race in his sense here under fascism that fascism had no staying power, whereas the true right, at least in principle, would have the men, and here I have to say he doesn't say anything about women, so I can't say the men and the women, it would have, it would have the men who match the preeminence of the state, and all of this wouldn't just scatter to the winds when the leader is gone or when there's some other such chuck to the system. Just about to turn to the last chapter, to my comments on the last chapter, but let me just see here. Let me just see. What are my thoughts on Evola's involution theory as it relates to his and Dugan's view on current politics? Again, Evola has more esoteric writings and theories and doctrines about religion and traditionalism and spirituality that we're not considering because they don't come up in detail in this book. I just wanted to give a preliminary presentation of the main arguments of his critique of fascism from the right to help us learn about what that undertaking is, as I said at the beginning, if we're used to hearing liberal or leftist accounts of fascism, or if we don't even know that there can be a, a critique of fascism from the right. But as to the specific doctrines of involution and other esoteric components of this thought, I propose again to leave that for to leave that for another occasion. Um, in general, I find a theory of involution uh, thought-provoking and interesting. I don't see it in anything that I've worked on of Dugan's, although there's much that Dugan published before I was around in the mid-90s and early 90s. I started largely with the fourth political theory and books after that. So it's, um, it's a terrain that I'll be writing about and publishing about and commenting on probably in more detail later. And let's just leave it at that. Do I know whether Evola knew Enoch Powell personally? No, I don't. Um, some other comments. Was he responsible for the Vril Society, his views on Tantra and the role of the feminine? Again, a lot of great questions, some of which I'm not equipped to answer, but it may be that on another occasion, I just take another book of his, prepare notes like I've done for you today, and we'll go through it. And then I'll be able to tell you what he thinks about the things that you're asking about. Here, I really wanted to focus on the political theory of the true right vis-a-vis fascism. So in the last chapter, he discusses the democratic punishment or criminalization of the defense of fascism. And here he says that such punishment is absurd for the following reason. So the Democrats are, are trying to punish and criminalize the defense of fascism, and that's absurd. Why? It will appear very clear to those who have followed us up to this point, he writes, that those who would like to condemn or attack fascism as a whole would find themselves compelled also to condemn ideas and principles that did not belong only to fascism, but were important in other earlier systems as well. 
In these terms, it would be necessary to define as more or less fascist the greater part of the states that history describes from distant ages when they're based on a principle of authority and hierarchy and admit nothing similar to absolute democracy, liberalism, or socialism. And isn't that what some have done today, I add? Describing any form of authority and hierarchy and any suspicion of democracy as fascist? Down to the absurdity of regarding Plato as a fascist, Socrates as a fascist, all of classical political thought as fascistic? It's an absurdity, and Evola saw it coming. He said, when the Democrats begin to criminalize the defense of fascism, if they understood the doctrine of fascism, especially as corrected or criticized from the right, then they would see that their criminalization of a defense of fascism is a wholesale criminalization of all the history of political thought prior to basically the French Revolution. So it's an absurdity. And Leo Strauss, among others, who defended the serious study of classical political thought, the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, and indeed who did so much to help turn our attention back even to medieval political theory, they're indispensable, I think, as are figures like Ebola and Schmidt, Dugan, Heidegger, in helping us get some independence again when it comes to thinking about these things. Because whether or not at the end of the day we share these views, we have to at least have the liberty of thought to consider them, to weigh them, to assess them, to understand them, some way to access them. And yet if you have a criminalization of the defense of fascism and therefore you stick any study of the classics um, under that criminalization, well, it's absurd. Evola's right. It's absurd. Okay. We're now near the end, and here there, we can summarize, as he says, the most essential traits of the type of state and regime that could be defined starting from a movement with a fascist character, which would overcome the various oscillations and confusions present in earlier reconstructive currents in a direction that's decisively on the right. So in other words, starting with something like Italian fascism, if you were to correct it and give it the outline of a true state, summarizing largely what we've said before, here would be the points. But before I get into them, what do I have here? 13, no, 15 points. 15 point summary of fascism viewed from the right, according to Evola in the last chapter. Let me just glance here at the chat to see if there's anything uh, you'd like me to address. By the way, great to see so many people in here. I appreciate you joining me tonight. I know some people are in different time zones where it's much later or much earlier. So um, thank you. I appreciate it. It's great. I'm going to begin now. So here's the summary of the points, and it's his own summary, but I've put it in point form. We're in the last chapter. The clear stance against every form of democracy and socialism is the first characteristic of the state of which we spoke. So the true state is against democracy and against socialism. Secondly, the true state will be oriented against both capitalism and communism. Thirdly, at its center will stand a principle of authority and a transcendent symbol of sovereignty. The most natural incarnation of such a symbol is the monarchy, 
I didn't say too much about that in summarizing the book, but you get a sense of it here. The most natural incarnation of a symbol of sovereignty and authority is the monarchy. And furthermore, the need to confer a chrism, a spiritual sanction on this transcendence is of fundamental importance. Fourth point, monarchy is not incompatible with legal dictatorship. The sovereign can confer exceptional unitary powers on a person of special stature and qualification on a legal basis, as Carl Schmitt also argued in his work on dictatorship. Fifth point, the state is the primary element that precedes nation, people, and society. The state and with the state, everything that is properly constituted as a political order and political reality is defined essentially on the basis of an idea. It's an ideocracy, not by naturalistic and contractual factors. Not a social contract, but relations of loyalty and obedience, of free subordination and honor are the bases of the true state, which does not acknowledge demagoguery and populism. Point six, the true state is the organic and, let me do that again. The true state is organic and unified without being totalitarian. It allows for the possibility of a large margin of decentralization. As we said earlier, liberty and partial autonomy stand in relation to loyalty and responsibility according to a precise reciprocity. Not totalitarian. Point seven, the true state does not acknowledge the system of parliamentary democracy and party rule. It only admits of corporative representation, as we said, in a corporative or lower house. And in the upper house, there should be an extraordinary tribunal to guarantee the preeminence of the political principle, having higher goals, which are not only material and short term. And, and here about the institution that organizes and, and represents and stands for a higher political principle, just in passing, I want to tell those of you who look at Plato that it, there's this interesting institution in Plato's laws called the Nocturnal Council. I direct your attention to that. It's late in the book. But here, the true state should have an extraordinary tribunal to guarantee the preeminence of the political principle and the higher goals that are not only material and short term. Point eight. The true state is against one man, one vote. We already said the majority of a healthy and ordered nation, the majority of a healthy and ordered nation should not be involved in politics. Politics is not something, not everything is political and not everybody should be involved. Not everybody's qualified. They are the matter as opposed to the form. They can be formed, but it's not really their business, the business of the majority and a healthy and ordered nation, it's not really their business to be involved in politics, according to Evola's doctrine of the true state. Next point, the political party, which is a necessary organ for a movement in a period of transition and struggle. So a political party is appropriate when you're trying to get yourself out of parliamentary politics, according to Evola, but it shouldn't be replaced by a single party once in power. Rather, it should constitute something like an order, which will participate in the dignity and authority concentrated in the center and assume some of the functions that in earlier traditional regimes belong to the nobility as a political class and key positions of the state. So the true state should not have part. It should not even have a single party. It should have an order. Next, the sphere of politics and power should be by its very nature and function free from economic influence. 
influences by economic groups or special interests. Remember here, the politics is above the economic. It's more dignified, more noble, more independent. It puts the economic in its place. And incidentally, you should know in Hegel's philosophy of right, another important reference point for us, I would say, the state also has preeminence vis-a-vis the economic domain, vis-a-vis civil society. And you know that the whole question of Marxism and its relation to Hegel and fascism and its relation to Hegel is an important one. But here I just mentioned that Hegel should be a reference for us in the philosophy of right when we're thinking about the true state and the fascist state. Next point, the class spirit should be eliminated and with it, the union movement. So the true state should be opposed to unions because they're classist. They're not hierarchical solidarity, integral hierarchical solidarity. Uh, Next point, the defense of the principle of true justice will entail denouncing what is today continually promoted as social justice. Early 1970s. A justice that serves only the lowest classes of society, the so-called working classes, and that works to the detriment of other classes, effectively leading to injustice. So the true state is not on the side of the social justice warriors. Not social justice, but true justice, political justice. Next, the true state will be hierarchical because it acknowledges and creates respect for the hierarchy of true values. And here I just want to say that in Plato's work, The Laws, which I discussed in a video not too long ago, one of the early discussions in the book concerns the question of the hierarchy of the virtues. Because the Athenian stranger who's visiting these other Greeks, a Cretan and a Spartan, he says to them, to what end end has your legislator legislated the laws? What are they for the sake of? And they say they're for the sake of victory in war. And the Athenian stranger ultimately traces that to the virtue of courage, but says that courage is only one of a number of virtues, including moderation, justice, and wisdom. And it's not obvious that it should be first place in the hierarchy of virtues. And in fact, one of the tasks that the Nocturnal Council I mentioned earlier engages in is a study of the virtues in their proper hierarchy. So Evola says that the true state should be hierarchical because it's based on a hierarchy of values, which means at least there should be some people some of thinking people in that state, thinking about what are the values and virtues, what is their proper order, and what is the nature of the hierarchy of values. Now, I've just given you a Platonizing interpretation, and maybe that he's addressed this question in some of his other works. So that was a little bit of editorializing, where, as I said, I was going to try to be faithful to the text, but what can you do? Next point, there will be an atmosphere of the highest possible tension. Like Nietzsche said, you don't want to unbend the bow. There's got to be tension in the human spirit here, and there will be the highest possible tension, but not of forced agitation. Finally, there will be, there will not be an intrusion of what is public into the field of private life, but rather there will be great freedom and with it, great responsibility. And is all all of this possible, he asks? Well, a doctrine of the state can only propose values to test the elective affinities and the dominant or latent vocations of a nation. So you can't just take the true theory of the state and slap it onto any people or any nation willy-nilly. Like they're automatically going to become hierarchical and free in this exalted sense. 
if a people cannot or does not want to acknowledge the values that we've called traditional, he says, and which define a true right, it deserves to be left to itself. And at most, we can point out to it the illusions and suggestions of which it has been or is the victim. But if that does not lead to a sensible result, then this people will suffer the fate that it has created by making use of its liberty. At most, you can point out the errors. At most, you can try to point out the correct way forward. But ultimately, if they're fiddling while Rome burns and they don't know that they're fiddling and they don't know that Rome burns, then they're going to have to, to change metaphors here, sleep in the bed they made. So that takes us to the end of this volume, Fascism Viewed from the Right, published by Arctos in 2013, translated by E. Christian Kopf. Okay, pick it up. It's a nice, it's a nice book. It's a good book to read. I've given you a, a summary, but it's always better to read the original source fully. And I just want to, uh, I want to thank you for your time and attention. If you found this helpful and if you found it interesting, and in general, if you follow my work and you like it, I would appreciate it. If you would like the video, share it, uh, subscribe to the channel. If you're not already subscribed, all of those things that you could do to show support, that'd be great. And now let me again turn here to the comments and see if there's anything that I haven't addressed. I mean, there may be, there may be a lot that I haven't addressed, in which case I apologize. I really wanted to get through all of the notes because the last video, like I said, was sort of stream of consciousness on Heidegger. And here I wanted to take a different approach and give you a thorough presentation of a complete work. So the most natural symbol of authority and sovereignty is the sun. That may be. He doesn't say so in this book. Again, he says it's the, it's the monarch dedicated to a transcendent principle. And the transcendent principle, he does say in this book, should be an idea. So if you're using the sun as a symbol for an idea, then maybe. But otherwise, we, that we would be reading too, too much into him here that's not present in the text itself. Another comment here about mankind falling out or below of time, linear history, fall from the eternal return. Um, Ethnosociology believes the same thoughts. Again, I suggest it's an interesting question. I suggest just another live stream on another occasion to deal with questions of the more esoteric nature concerning history and humanity and time and all of that. And to be honest, I haven't read the first author that you mentioned there. And Eliade, I also don't know particularly well. So as I mentioned, it may be just that I study one of these works and we'll have a reading group about it once I've studied it, but I can't comment too much because I'm just not familiar with the works. First time watching, we'll watch more. Great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Great talk. Thanks. Awesome. Appreciate it very much. So let's leave it there. I'll be doing more live streams, not just the pre-recorded Millerman talks, because I love to see you here live and I love to respond to the questions and comments when I can. So follow me on Twitter, if you will, like the video, as I said, if you don't mind, share it. And I very much appreciate your time and attention. Let's see one more comment. Maybe it sounds like there needs to be an agreement on what the transcendent principle is, but how are people going to agree on that now? Well, he's not asking for mass, mass agreement. Because he says, remember, the mass of people need to be shaped by the form or by the political principle. So you need to have, on the basis of this work, a party that takes over a parliamentary democracy, transforms it into an order, is dedicated to something transcendent, can impress the form of that 
sacred principle onto the masses through the things that we've discussed here in terms of the economy, in terms of freedom, in terms of the extent of its encroachment and lack thereof into private life and all of that. But I would say that the question that hangs over this text in particular, not talking about everything Evola has written, but the question that we're left with is similar to the question Leo Strauss was left with when he finished reading Carl Schmitt's concept of the political. It's what are the substantive virtues or values or ideas that we need to be dedicated to here? What are those values? What is the hierarchy of values? This work doesn't answer that question, but nevertheless, I think it does give us in broad outline, especially in that last summary chapter, a, a blueprint for what the true state would look like as a modification of fascism and the, all the more so of liberalism or communism. So again, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks a lot. Hope you guys enjoyed it. and. Until next time.